Please Look Up is recorded at SciTech on Wajak Noongar land. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to a special episode of Please Look Up, a podcast produced by Particle. In this episode, we'll be taking a deep dive into the Murchison Widefield Array. My name is Leon, and I'm joined by uh, a man of great impressive titles, the Deputy Executive Director of the International Centre of Radio Astronomy Research, as well as the Director of the Murchison Widefield Array, Professor Stephen Tingay. Thank you for being here. Yeah, no worries. So we've got you on here today because there's big news in the world of radio astronomy recently, which is that the MWA is turning 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you able to tell us a little bit about that? I, I mean, I've even just started calling it the MWA, but what is the MWA? Yeah, the, the MWA is uh, a radio telescope based here in Western Australia, in the Murchison region, which is uh, Wadri Yamaji country. Um, it's a precursor telescope for the much bigger future square kilometre array. Uh, probably many people have heard about that. That's a, a multi-billion euro uh, international project to build the world's biggest radio telescope here in, in WA. So the MWA plays a role as a, a precursor, both in terms of preparing our community to do the science with the SKA, uh, but also to develop the technology and understand how to operate large-scale telescopes in what is a pretty harsh environment out in the Murchison? Yeah, absolutely right. Um, there's a very broad answer there. And, and yeah, you've touched on it's a precursor to the SKA, which I'd love to come back to soon. And you said you're sort of preparing the community and the science organisation, uh, the scientific community to operate such a large uh, telescope like this. Is this unique in that sense? It is a little bit. Uh, so the MWA is uh, an international project in itself. There are... Um, well, truly upwards of 20 uh, institutes and organisations, universities in uh, five different countries around the world working on the MWA. So Australia, Canada, China, Japan and the US. So they all have an interest in preparing for the SKA. Um, and so all of those member countries are sort of chipping in to develop and build and operate the MWA. So it has a, a pretty different vibe to most facilities that are generally built by a single jurisdiction and operated by a single organisation. Now I'm going to throw an interesting word at you, uh, Golgamanu. Can you tell me about that? Uh, well, that's the, the Wadri name for the MWA and um, the, the loose translation is ear that listens to the sky, um, which is really nice because uh, the picture I have of the MWA is this, um, you know, as you said, spidery-like antennas distributed over the landscape, you know, shining in the sunlight, just sort of existing quietly on this ancient landscape that has been there for millennia, um, just quietly listening to what's going on in the universe. So it's mm. a it's a really, uh, really nice Wadri name. That is a, a really nice name. And what's the relationship between the... Uh the MWA operators and the observatory and the, the Wadri Yamaji people? Yeah, it goes back a fair while now. Uh, the, the MWA is basically the impetus uh, behind you know, me and others working around Geraldton and around the Midwest. Uh, and back in 2009, which was the International Year of Astronomy, mm. um, we had a, a project meeting in Geraldton and uh, the city council invited along some of the artists from Yamaji Art uh, and they brought along paintings of some of their sky stories. 
Oh, uh, wow. So we started talking about the Seven Sisters and the Emu in the Sky and, and, and other things. And the discussion got really interesting really quickly. And before we knew it, we were traveling out on country together, sitting around the campfire, huh. staring at the sky and sharing our stories. Um, That's uh, fantastic. Yeah, thinking about the some of the similarities between um, indigenous uh, views of the night sky and sort of uh, the Western or Greco-Roman mythologies, as well as the, the astrophysical stories. Um, so that really took off. And over the last 14 years, we've done multiple global exhibitions of art. We've done um, a movie uh, for the dome format called oh, Star Dreaming. Yes. Um, and we're just, we're cooking up uh, new projects all the time. So it, it's been amazing to work with the guys from Yamaji Art and to spend some time on country with them and do some amazing things. Yeah, that's great that it's a, a continuous ongoing relationship. I yep. like It's not just a, a symbolic handshake at day one and then that's the end of it. Absolutely not, because um, we could not do what we're doing out in the Murchison without the permission and the goodwill of the traditional owners of that land. So um, it's really, really important for us to uh, deeply respect that. Um, and that it's actually natural and easy because we bond over our different views of the same sky. So we, we share that sky. Nobody owns it. We all have stories. Um, and yeah, it's, it's inspiring to me when we get together and talk through some of those things. And it, it leads to other conversations as, as well and le- leads to a deeper understanding what a what a great uh, way of looking at it and i love that sentiment that uh, the shared sky that belongs to nobody mm. so yes yeah, so it's, a, it's a really great relationship i really like that and when we talk about this telescope so it's a radio telescope hence why we've got um we mentioned uh, ikra earlier there as well um radio telescopes looking at photos of the mwa it doesn't look anything like what you might expect a telescope i'm thinking of the dish as everyone does yep. but this looks like a bunch of spiders yeah yeah uh, it's an accurate Visual description. Um, pretty interestingly, the, the MWA is composed of antennas that just sit on the ground, mm-hmm. uh, sort of distributed across the lands- landscape. No moving parts. So the no moving parts. No moving parts. So the steering of the instrument is done completely electronically. Um, I made a really nice little video that shows exactly that the MWA set of antennas is exactly equivalent to the dish, for example. So all of the physics of how a radio telescope works is the same. But um, many of the functions that are performed in a big dish mechanically um, and using uh, yeah, mechanical engineering are all done electronically with the MWA. Okay, and what's the choice for that? Why not just build a big dish? Yeah, well, there's a limit to how big you can build something for a sensible amount of money. Yeah, so course. around about the, the biggest radio single radio telescope you can build and not bankrupt yourself is around about 100 meters in diameter. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want more collecting area and therefore sensitivity and a bigger extent, which means better resolution, um, a really cool way to do that is to break up your antenna into little bits and scatter them around. Um, so you make more telescopes that are smaller and that turns out to be much cheaper and much more flexible. Uh, and, and that's essentially, when you add it all back together, the equivalent of making just a single big telescope. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and you have the freedom to distribute things as you want and configure the telescope according to whatever your requirements are. So it introduces a lot of flexibility. 
Fantastic. And how many of these antenna does the MWA comprise of? Uh, currently, the, the MWA comprises of 8,192 individual antennas, um, and they're distributed over um, about 30 square kilometres. 30 square kilometres. Okay. Mm. Uh, oh, but obviously they're not occupying the complete space. Um, how large is each individual antenna? The individual antennas are about uh, um, 50 centimetres um Wide and fifty centimeters tall. Oh, so they're, yeah, they're quite small. They're, they're yeah, they're very very manageable. So um, very easy to deploy. Very easy to um, manufacture. You you can manufacture a lot of them very cheaply, mm-hmm. um, and therefore you can get um, a really sensitive telescope by building lots of antennas at a, at a very reasonable cost. Much cheaper. I see what you mean. Rather than trying to engineer a gigantic dish. Yeah. Um, Eight thousand one hundred ninety-two. That's peaking. Is a power of two, isn't it? Uh, astronomers, well, radio astronomers do love our powers of two. <laughs> is there, was that just for convenience or does that have something to do with the design of the telescope as well? Uh, it sort of comes about through, um, we quite like the fast Fourier transform in our signal processing oh, and, yeah. and powers of two are quite good. Um, so powers of two sort of catch on. Yeah, man. <laughs> no, that's good. Oh, it's been a while since I've uh, done the fast Fourier transform, but yep. yeah, okay, I, I can make a connection there. And I, so I suppose when... Because it's so vastly different, most people would have little difficulty in imagining how most telescopes work, where you have the focusing of light and collecting that. But when you've got these antenna that look, yeah, look very much like spiders, physically, what happens? The the light wave arrives at an antenna, and then how is that then turned into a signal and information? Yeah. So as you say, people can visualise pretty easily what a dish is doing. It's the same as a you know, magnifying glass lens. Um, when the radio waves hit the surface of the dish, um, they hit some of the surface uh, first, the outside bits, and they're reflected back to the focus. Um, and so the, the dish structure um, allows the introduction of delays between the different signals that are hitting the dish. It brings it all to a, a physical focus. Mm. Uh, the MWA does that purely etro- electronically. So when a radio wave sweeps across the array... Uh, we can adjust the the time the signal then takes from each individual antenna and we can adjust that so that all of those signals add up um, to a focus in exactly the same way as a dish forms a focus. But instead of a, a physical uh, delay introduced by the surface of the dish, we have an electronic delay. Right. So is my understanding if you've got just let's keep it simple two antennas and uh, a light wave comes from space it will, reach, it will reach one of the antennas a fraction of a second before the other one yep and so you then build in an, an electronic delay into that first antenna yep so that by the time you put all the signals together they are quote at the same time that that's exactly right so in radio astronomy we so call cool. we call that um well it's bringing into focus you're, you're focusing the instrument or you're making those signals coherent so they all add up together uh, coherent is that a very deliberate choice of words? Uh, yeah, so that refers to the coherence of the the radio waves that are just waves. So if you think about waves, you want all the the peaks of the waves lining up, and you want all the troughs of the waves lining up. So oh, that I see, yep. that means that they're incoherence when you do that. Yeah, okay, that that makes sense. Yeah, gotcha. And what frequency does the MWA look at? Uh, yeah, it's a low, what we call low radio frequencies. So uh, the MWA operates between uh, about 80 megahertz and 300 megahertz. Um, so for context, the, the FM band that you listen to in your car mm-hmm. is between sort of 87 and 108 megahertz. So 
the MWA covers the FM band and a, f- a few other well-known bands as well. So you can pick up the radio station at the MWA? if uh, Well... The, in theory. Well, uh, we, we can. Um, the choice of the, the Murchison is purposeful um, because a very low population density, uh, it's quite remote and you want to be away from FM radio stations, you want to be away from cellular phones, you want to be away from uh, people basically. Mm. Um, but we can, we can still spot uh, Geraldton transmitters just over the horizon. So oh, wow. um, even even from the middle of the Murchison, you can pick up those signals with a very sensitive telescope. Wow, because, yeah, I imagine the, yeah, sticking a radio tower out there is the equivalent of shining a torch into your eyeball while you're looking in a telescope. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly right. Um, and where does this frequency band compare to, uh, like, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth? Is that anywhere near MWA? Uh, no, they're they're typically um, significantly higher in frequency, sort of in the, uh, around about the gigahertz multiple multiple gigahertz oh, range, like an order of magnitude. Yeah, orders of magnitude. Um, but that's fascinating that you're still collecting signals from um, from Geraldton. So are there just is there no radio uh, communication allowed within the Murchison area? Uh, well, there's on, on the site because it is quite remote. Um, there are situations where. Uh, mobile communications are allowed and that, that's through just VHF radios walkie-talkies basically um, but if you take your phone out there there is zero signal um, normal communications just aren't possible out there yeah okay um, and yeah we're, we're kind of just tossing around Murchison quite casually whereabouts roughly if, you, if I'm going to drive to Murchison how do you get there uh, yeah, to get there, we would uh, typically fly to Geraldton from Perth um, and then get some four-wheel drives and, and take the drive out. So it's about three-and-a-half-hour drive. Um, so we head out uh, past Mullawa to a uh, tiny little place called Pindar, and then you chuck a left and you leave the bitumen and you spend the next 250 kilometres on a, on a dirt road. On a dirt road, wow. Yeah, and so we end up at... Uh, uh, Bulati Station, which is the site that uh, the telescopes are being built on. Yeah, okay, I gotcha. Um, and that actually it was another question I had in mind. Yeah, we're out in this very remote uh, environment, which is obviously exposed to the elements and all that sort of stuff. What sort of physical maintenance does the telescope require? MWA is pretty good, actually. Um, I mean, because the antennas are so simple, uh, they're made of aluminium that doesn't doesn't really oxidise. Um, the electronics attached to the antennas are pretty simple. And over yeah, over the course of the last you know, 15 years, we've iterated the design so that um, they're very robust to the weather and the elements, um, temperature fluctuations, all those types of things. So what, what's actually out in the, the field is very, very simple. Where all the complexity and all of the, the cost um, comes is on the back end where you've got to deal with the enormous amount of data. All of the computers, all of the, you know, largely speaking, most of the electronics um, is inside a, a big central building that's obviously highly protected. Yeah, gotcha. Is that central building on site or are you talking about down here in Perth? Yeah, it's a central building out on the out on the site. And so all of the signals from the antennas end up in that building. That's where they're all combined. And uh, yep. Brought into focus uh, oh, using yep. that technique that we discussed earlier, mm-hmm. um, and so the first stage data processing occurs in that building, and we use a, a large cluster of pretty powerful server computers that have the latest and greatest uh, GPU cards in them. And so yeah, you do a little bit of basic uh, processing on site, and then that data, I understand, comes down to Perth. Is there like hundreds of kilometres of fibre optics? Is that what happens? Yeah, the processed data um, hit a dedicated fibre optic um, network that goes, roughly speaking, the 800 kilometres down to Perth, and all of those data uh, are ingested into the Pawsey Supercomputing Centre, and so that's where our 
um, data archive sits, and that's where we've accumulated over the last decade about 47 petabytes worth of data. 47 petabytes. A lot of data. That's so 47,000 terabytes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the yeah. laptop I'm using in front of me has about a terabyte. Yeah. It's um, the the numbers don't mean a lot to a, to many people, but um, so I use analogies, mm. and my latest one is that um, if you started Netflix on HD streaming. When Constantine the Great was the Roman Emperor in the year 300, you would have 47 petabytes by now. <laughs> so streaming Netflix for 17 centuries, basically. Yeah, all the way through the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, <laughs> yeah. Renaissance. Yeah, that's, that's a good analogy. I like that. It is that. a good analogy. Uh, and is there any upper limit? Uh, we're just going to hang on to all that data forever? or? Yeah, we're at the point where we actually have to manage that um, a bit. So over the years, we've accumulated more storage capacity at Pawsey. Um, but we are at the point after a decade where you know, not every single byte of that data set is useful. So we're going back and we're getting rid of some of the less useful stuff, some of the test observations, um, just so we can free up a, a bit more space for what comes next. Yeah, okay, that makes sense, um, which I'm guessing might lead into SKA as well, which uh, yeah, I'll get to in a second. I just wanted to go back to the physics. Essentially, was, you said between about 80 and 300 megahertz is the frequency. What sort of physical processes produce radio waves of those frequencies? Uh, yeah, there, there's a few different physical processes. Probably the, probably the main one is uh, something that we call synchrotron radiation. Um, so this is where you have a magnetic field interacting with charged particles. Um, generally speaking, in the astrophysical sense, there are electrons. So you, you, you have electrons sort of attached to the magnetic field lines and they spiral around those field lines um, and a spiraling charge is accelerated and accelerated charges produce uh, photons. Um, so in this case, they're, they're radio photons, they're radio waves. So magnetic fields are uh, ubiquitous all through our galaxy, all through other galaxies. Um, so the, the majority of radiation that we observe from the universe is... Uh, this type of synchrotron radiation. Right, um, and mostly associated with magnetic fields or are there other sources that can produce synchrotron radiation? Uh, synchrotron radiation is magnetic fields and charged particles, um, but there are there are uh, other processes as well. Yeah, yeah. okay. Because, um, yeah, I was just thinking I understand the role of magnetic fields in galaxy evolution is still a very open area of research. Yeah, it sure is. Um, it's something that that's still pretty unknown, the, the origin of magnetic fields and uh, how they operate astrophysically in a lot of different environments. Um, so it, it's, it's one of the big questions that we hope to answer with radio astronomy. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose uh, to follow on that as well, uh, where we talk about how as the universe expands and what light is in the universe gets stretched out, are there any other physical processes that may once have been very high energy but have now been stretched out into the radio waves that we can still detect? Well, um, the, the radio waves that were produced from um, first uh, generation of stars and galaxies forming, so back, back in the very early universe, um, first billion years after the Big Bang, um, Largely speaking, there was a, a lot of neutral hydrogen. That neutral hydrogen produced stars and galaxies eventually. Um, but neutral hydrogen also produces radio waves through a, a change in configuration of the atom. And it produces radio waves at very specific frequency, 1.421 something gigahertz. Mm -hmm. um, and so actually the MWA and the SKA are designed to tune into that radio emission 
but after it's travelled all the way across the universe, it's been reduced in frequency by a factor of 10. Right. So it starts at you know 1.4 gigahertz and we receive it at 150 megahertz. Yeah, smack bang in the middle. Yeah. Right, so you can map neutral hydrogen across the entire universe, basically. Well, uh, the more distant reaches, I should in, say. In, in, in the really distant universe. And the, the, the point is to watch that neutral hydrogen changing and forming the stars and galaxies. So when it's forming the stars and galaxies, those stars and galaxies produce... Um, ionizing emissions, so photons at higher energy, UV, X-ray, and as those high-energy photons propagate out from the stars and galaxies, they ionize the the neutral hydrogen. Right. So the neutral hydrogen sort of disappears, evaporates, sort of. Um, The stars and galaxies appear, and the, the universe becomes transparent. Yeah, okay, is this epoch of reionization. I've definitely heard about that. And mm-hmm. it's still very, uh, I don't know, it's, I think poorly is the right word, but still, there's still a lot of understanding to do with regards to that area. Oh, abs- absolutely. I Personally, I reckon there's probably two or three Nobel Prizes in <laughs> the people who figure out the, the epoch of reionization and all the astrophysics around it. It's the, it's the last um, really unexplored epoch in the history of our universe, that sort of first billion years. So that's big science, and that's why we... You know, build things like the MWA. Absolutely. And you've mentioned that coming into sort of bringing it all to today, where you've said the MWA is a precursor to the, the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, is that basically taking the ideas and lessons from MWA and scaling it up and making this magnificent, uh, all-powerful telescope? Yeah, that, that that's right. So the, the SKA is such a massive leap from the capabilities of telescopes that we had a generation ago. You, you need a stepping stone in between. Uh, so the MWA and other precursors around the world uh, play that role. Gotcha. Um, so it's it's a it's a chance to learn how to uh, how to use how to calibrate and make images from you know, as you described earlier, pretty different type of telescope, uh, and for the community to take the first really serious swing at some of this science, like the epoch of reionization. Um, so this is all preparation for the SKA. Right. And so are you able to quickly give us a rundown of the SKA for people who don't know what that is? Uh, yeah, well, the, the SKA, or Square Kilometre Array, is um, a big version of the MWA. <laughs> I think that's the best way of putting it. Qualitatively, it's um, a large number of uh, relatively simple antennas, no moving parts uh, scattered out uh, around the landscape. But this time it's like 131,000 Antennas, not 8,000. Right. And it's distributed over 1,000 square kilometres, not 30. Right, so significantly <laughs> so larger. Much more sensitive, um, potential for much more detailed images. Yeah. Yeah, and sensitive enough to potentially see into this EOR. Mm-hmm. Yep. And in your role itself, your day to day role, what's your involvement with? Um, that project or with the MWA? Uh, well, I'm the director of the MWA, so responsible for, for leading the team that uh, built and now operates the telescope. Uh, so that's been an um, enormous amount of fun over the last decade. And alongside that, me and my team have been deeply involved in uh, the SKA development. And in fact, uh, the MWA has hosted over the last decade uh, several generations of prototypes for the SKA antennas. Um, testing the configuration, testing sensitivity, performance, understanding how those antennas survive in the environment. And so all of that work um, has been wrapped up and, and that's gone into the construction program now. So um, 
So we've done an enormous amount of design work for elements of the electronics. Um, we've done a huge amount of prototyping and testing of the, the different designs. And all of that has fed into uh, the construction program. And ultimately that is being um, expressed in a, a bunch of quite high value contracts that are going to go to Australian industry. Wow. Um, so you sort of close the loop and um, there's a you know, economic as well as scientific benefit to these projects in that sense. Yeah, and that's interesting because that is always often a case of the for, for, for people who are in it for the science, you have no problem in um, dedicating time and effort to a project, but a lot of questions are always hanging over industry and economy and things like that. And so you're saying that, yeah, there's there's a lot of money going into the Australian industry because of this massive scientific project. Yeah, um, a couple of years ago, um, I did a, or I commissioned um, an economic and social impact assessment of the MWA project. And um, the, the people who did that assessment discovered that for every dollar that Australia has spent on the MWA, uh, more than two dollars of GDP has been generated. Wow! So that's you know that that people don't think of telescopes in that way. No, but, not but at all. that's comparable to sort of bridges or all sorts of other bits of infrastructure that are more standard in people's thinking. So yeah, I think it's important to yeah make sure we we pursue amazing science. But in, in doing that, um, you know, we have to really push the envelope and um, that means that we, we need to get industry involved and that feeds back into their capabilities as well. Yeah, I can see what you mean. And that's that's such an impressive number as well. Um, and so basically you painted a really nice picture of the MWA as being both a stepping stone to SKA, something much larger, but also by itself an incredibly capable and um, versatile piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. So it really is... Um, a fantastic piece of technology. I suppose we'll come back to the MWA. What are some of the, in your opinion, what do you think some of the most exciting things that it's discovered? Uh, yeah, well, um, just last week uh, was published a paper by one of our researchers, Natasha Hurley-Walker, um, and her discovery of, well, it's a second second object of this type that she and her team have discovered, but uh, what appears to be a compact star in our galaxy that has produced bursts of radio waves every 20 minutes or so for the last 30 years um so it's possibly a neutron star or maybe a white dwarf star uh that has a magnetic field and is rotating um and it's a little bit of a mystery because uh it doesn't look like it should be powerful enough to produce these radio waves but it does so um it's a discovery of a completely apparently new type of uh, object in our galaxy um so that was published in the journal nature last week which is sort of the most prestigious journal in the world um and natasha had the first one in nature last last year so you know i'm expecting one per year from natasha from now on if you're if you're listening natasha no pressure (laughs) (laughs) you said that the data went back 30 years mwa hasn't been around for 30 years so did it you just found something in the data and then went looking for historical records is that yeah yeah exactly and this is a really super interesting part of the story with the MWA, as I said before, we have 47 petabytes of data. Mm. That, that goes back about a decade. So Natasha and her team were sort of sifting through some of the current data and decided to look for things that vary in brightness. Um, and so then they found this. Uh, so the obvious thing to do is to look back through our archive and she kept finding it through the archive. Oh, wow. Um, and, but then she went to the archives of other telescopes around the world and found it in in those archives as well so 
it really dramatically shows the value of keeping your data. Yeah. Because the idea that you have that may be motivated the collection of the data, after a decade, maybe your ideas have changed, maybe new things have come up. Um, and if you've got the ability to go back, go back in time and look, re-look through that archive, it's a goldmine. Mm. So who knows what else is in there? Yeah, that's a fantastic sentiment. And I guess the same thinking applies to the SKA as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there are certain science objectives to the project, but any number of things that we haven't even thought of that we may one day discover. Now, you mentioned that the Pawsey Supercomputing Centre is storing about 47-odd terabytes of data from the MWA. Is that a common thing? Do all research organisations store and catalogue their data like that? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty common. In fact, under under legislation, you, you're supposed to keep all of, all of the records for the data that you use for producing publications and all that sort of stuff. So there's lots of laws about um, retaining information. So it is a common thing amongst uh, telescopes is to store all of the data that comes from the telescopes in an archive. The, the difference with the MWA is that uh, the amounts of data produced are you know, absolutely enormous. Mm. So you know, 47 or 50 petabytes represents about one-sixth of the absolute total amount of research data across the entirety of Australia, across all disciplines. So that wow. just one project takes up one-sixth of that volume, which is uh, huge. Wow. So about 300 petabytes of scientific data in the entire country yep. for a ballpark figure. And one-sixth of it is the MWA. Yeah, that's right. And it, it makes up a, a much bigger fraction of the data that's actually properly archived, that has proper metadata, that's discoverable um, and, and people can actually access. The, the 300 petabytes is a, a bit of an estimate based on what we know and an extrapolation. Oh, okay. Um, and it, it could just be sitting on someone's hard drive and things like that. Yeah, exactly. A, a lot of data is not all that well curated. Um, it's a fair bit of effort and a fair bit of cost to, to go through that properly but um, as we described earlier the, the the benefits of doing that um, are sometimes not apparent until years after you've made those observations yep so 300 ter- uh, petabytes is the estimate of data is there an estimate of like usable data that has been properly catalogued uh, yeah I think it's sitting at around about 70 petabytes or so and most of that's astronomy yeah so astronomers you know lots of data. leading edge of <laughs> looking after their data and so of those 70. About 50 is MWA. So it went from being one-sixth of the total data to being five-sevenths. Yeah, approximately, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big fraction. Yeah, wow. And yeah, as you say, and it it goes to show long-term benefits, it is worth investing in the time and energy now because Mm -hmm. you can always come back and you never know what you're going to find. Yeah, exactly. Um, I understand MWA is also quite good at just seeing large numbers of galaxies because it has just an extremely wide field of view. Is that right? Yeah, the, the hints in the name, Murchison Wide Field Array, and, and the wide field, um, uh, the word wide field refers to the field of view of the telescope on the sky. Um, so if you, if you look at the MWA, you'll see that our antennas are grouped into groups of 16, what we call a tile. Yeah. And that is sort of the primary uh, antenna system. So that, that antenna has a field of view of you know, maybe a thousand square degrees. Uh, which is a lot compared to any other telescope in the world. Yeah, so for comparison, I remember the, the full moon is about half a square degree. I uh, it's, it's something of, it's yeah, it's like a quarter of a square degree or something like that. Yeah, um, so, so we're talking many times the size of the Yeah, the yeah, many, moon. many thousands of times uh, the full moon. So 
uh, yeah, when you look out into the universe, you you get everything that that is in that field of view. So you know, thousands and thousands of galaxies and stars in our galaxy. Um, yeah, so it's a really it's a really efficient way to do that. Um, as I said earlier, you pay the price on the on the back end where you've got to store the data and process the data. Yeah, gotcha. Right. But yeah, as we also say, you can go back through that data mm-hmm. decades later and still find amazing things. Yep, absolutely. Um, which leads to, I've got uh, still just a few more questions. Uh, how many papers have been generated by the MWA in some way or another? Uh, yeah, I think it's pretty close to, it's over 200 by now. Wow. Um I'd have to go back and check exactly, but it's certainly in the hundreds. And some of those papers have had enormous numbers of citations, which mm. is sort of the, the key metric in academia. It, yeah. It's not how many papers you produce, it's who is referring to your papers and it, you know, that's, that's sort of the judgment of quality. So it's been enormously scientifically productive. It's, it's supported the training of many dozens of graduate students, so PhDs and master students. Um, it's supported lots of, lots of activities for undergraduate students. Um, that's sort of a, a key role in preparing our community for you know the life of the the SKA down the track. So it won't be people of my age who are leading the science in the SKA, but it's it's the people who are my PhD students at the moment. Um, and how many people work uh, with or at the MWA at the moment? The core operations team is um, astonishingly lean and mean. <laughs> so the entire facility is operated by five or six people. At Curtin University. Wow. So they are the people actually paid to you know, operate the MWA, keep it alive, look after the look after the data. But the user community for the MWA is um, you know, in excess of 500 researchers from all of our member countries around the world. Mm-hmm. So once the data go into the Pawsey Centre, um, our users can uh, go to that portal, discover the data that they want, download it. Um, and so they're the people who uh, process the data and write the papers. Um, so in that in that sense, it's in the in the hundreds. Um, and then after eighteen months, all of our data become public. So anyone anywhere in the world can grab them and do something. And so there are probably you know, more hundreds of researchers around the world doing yeah, that. Everyone just getting getting their hands on the data. Mm. Um, and yeah, it is interesting that you mentioned that such a small team of core operators because. I guess one of the things that most people don't realise is that modern astronomy is not done by sitting at the telescope and looking through it. Yeah. You, you know, these hundreds of users, do they just put in a request for time and then the telescope automatically does it and then they just download their data? Yeah, twice twice per year we issue a, what's called a call for proposals um, and anyone can write a proposal uh, with a project idea. They get assessed by a panel. Um, they, they recommend... The uh, ranking of those projects, and then if you're high enough ranked, uh, then you, your proposal gets scheduled. So it goes into the queue, data are collected, uh, and away you go. And away you go. Do you yourself do much research these days? Uh, yes, I I do. Um, one of one of my key personal metrics is to try and produce at least one first author publication per year. <laughs> Um, it's an admirable goal. It's an admirable goal, and I I tend to stick to it. Although I'm looking like I'm in a little bit of trouble this year, but yeah, my passion is astrophysics, and that's why I got into it uh, at a young age. So, you know, the day that I have to give that up is the day that you know I'll stop doing it. Um, <laughs> that's very yeah, hits it on the head, I think. But but you know, my my research is done between the hours of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair. Once, <laughs> once you've finished all your other work for the day. Yeah, exactly. Yep. 
and then my last main question really sort of diving at the heart of anyone who loves astronomy what's your take on the when you deal with millions of galaxies in a single data set and you're looking at this you know, tens of petabytes of data how do you put yourself in the universe do you feel small do you feel large do you feel um, overwhelmed what's your personal take on the whole thing it's a it's a good question um so i knew i wanted to be an astronomer at like age six um because growing up in the country i would just sit outside at night wondering about what these stars were where they came from what does it mean so from a from a really early age i immersed myself in the universe really and what i do now as a professional astronomer um is really no different actually and whether it's like thousands of galaxies emitting radio waves in an image on my screen or sitting outside at night I find it quite easy to immerse myself in it and sort of visualize what all of that means I I really like looking at the planets and the moon all together in the sky and mm -hmm. you you know that Venus is a certain distance and the moon is closer and I, I find it really interesting to visualize that ge geometry and take myself off the surface of the the earth and visualize it from you know the point of view of the solar system um, or the galaxy or the universe so I, I don't know maybe I ingrained it into myself at a very early age but um, it's pretty natural to me yeah right that's that's a really beautiful way of thinking about it yeah you're just enjoying the part of it that you're experiencing at the time and uh, and it is what it is that's a that's a fantastic way to finish I think uh, thank you so much for being here today uh, Professor Tinge it's been an absolute pleasure no worries thanks Leon that's it for this special episode of Particles Please Look Up. We'll see you next month where we talk about the night sky and the space news for September. If you want to hear more interesting space news, check out the website particle.scitech.org.au for more information.